I invite you to turn your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, we will once again be in chapter 9. We're going to finish the chapter. As you've heard me say throughout this series, there were no clear breaks um, in this portion. Uh, we could just as easily have uh, worked from the middle of chapter 9 throughout the whole of chapter 10, as it is uh, certainly one unit, but there are no clear distinctions within these different literary units. Um, as I have said, it's Solomon, is the, he is the preacher, he is Koheleth. And like so many preachers, uh, it seems as though one thought is stimulating another thought, and he's getting away from his notes, and he's just letting the Spirit move. Uh, and so sermons like that don't always have clear structure. <laughs> so there's not clear structure here, but there is definitely a unit of thought here in the second half of chapter 9. It follows, uh, obviously, on what we just uh, talked about last week. Um, and what he has been saying throughout this entire, entire book. The title of the sermon this morning is Time and Chance Happen to Us All. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 11 through 18. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The wisdom of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have not left us in the darkness. You have not left us to the whims of our own hearts. You have not left us at the whim of our, our, of our own evil, wicked desires. But you have revealed yourself. You've revealed yourself in your world. You have revealed yourself in your word. And you continue to reveal yourself, even to us, your people, through the means of grace. And so speak to us and give us ears to listen, eyes to see, and wills that are willing to trust you and to take a chance in being faithful to you in the difficulties of this world. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 80s, there was this 
young, very strong, very big, very fast running back. And I know that you know who I'm talking about. Marcus Dupree. Marcus Dupree, who broke Herschel Walker's high school touchdown record. So you were thinking of Herschel. Marcus Dupree, who was bigger than Herschel Walker, who was stronger than Herschel Walker, who was faster than Herschel Walker. Now, I know all of you know who I'm talking about. Certainly someone that big and that fast and that strong that, that, that beat Herschel Walker's high school touchdown record, surely you know who Marcus Dupree is. Marcus Dupree was the subject of one of my favorite ESPN 30 for 30 films. Now, hopefully most of the guys, you know what I'm talking about. Those, those films that ESPN puts together where for people like us who can't do sports anymore, we can at least watch the people who used to do sports, right? But they make these, these biographies of, of these different uh, individuals or these different like big moments um, uh, within sports history. Um, like the Catholics versus the, con the convicts. If you don't know what that's about, ask me afterward. It's fascinating. Notre Dame versus the University of Miami. We know which one the convicts are, right? But there is this ESPN film documentary that was made about Marcus Dupree titled The Best That Never Was. You had this young, strong, fast running back that was breaking records, that was the most heavily recruited running back in the country uh, in 1981. And he was, uh, he ended up going to the University of Oklahoma. And he was part of that, that the revamping of Oklahoma's offense in the early 80s where they just started running over people, literally. And he was part of, of that transition that took place in the early 80s. And as a freshman, he had an amazing year. And then as a sophomore, he had an even greater year. But there was a conflict. There was a conflict between this young athlete who was so naturally talented and his coaches that were trying to help him become better. And the tact that they took to try to spur him on did the opposite, and it shut him down. And the result was he didn't even finish the second season. One day after a game, he just disappeared. And the next thing that the coaches knew, he was back home in Mississippi. Needed to go home, needed to see his mama. He never went What he eventually did was transfer to the University of Southern Mississippi. But back then, you couldn't transfer and play. You had to sit out a year. He didn't want to sit out a year. So he did what Herschel Walker did. He joined the USFL. He gave up college, and the USFL, back in the early 80s, would allow uh, college students to um, they didn't have to complete the whole time in college before they could come up 
uh, and be drafted. And so he gave up college and decided he would just go right into the pros. He did. He eventually blew out both of his knees, broke his leg, and you've never heard of him. In the documentary, one of the things that he says is, life just doesn't always end up the way that you think it's going to. And that is exactly what Solomon has been trying to get us to see from the beginning and what he is hitting home very hard on here in chapter 9. Life doesn't always end up where you think it's going to end up. It doesn't always go the way that you think it's going to go. And it certainly doesn't always function the way we think that it should. He says very clearly at the beginning of chapter 9 that there is no advantage in this life in being a moral person over being an evil person because both, th- both the moral and both the evil experience the exact same things in this life. They both experience what Solomon has been saying from the beginning, that there is nothing new in, under the sun. That everything in life, a life that has been cursed because of original sin, is the same thing over and over and over. And outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, there has been nothing new under the sun. Not only is there the frustration of being, there not being anything new, but life just continuing as it is in a fallen state. He has, he has told us that justice in this world is incomplete. That we shouldn't be surprised when we look around and we see injustice. We shouldn't be surprised when we look around and we see the way that the powerful are taking advantage of the weak. He doesn't say that makes it okay. He doesn't say, so, you know, don't be concerned about it. But he does say, don't let it surprise you and don't let it shake you to your core. Don't let that be the thing that changes the way you view this world. Life doesn't always make sense. And death comes to us all. The righteous and the wicked experience this life in the same ways, with the same frustration, with the same end. And yet, what Solomon tells us is this is not a reason to try to control, and this is not a reason to give up. But this is a reason for us to look to God and his goodness and to experience that goodness in the little things of this life. Those joys that God intended for us in the Garden of Eden. The joy of food and bounty. The, the joy of wine, the, the joy of marriage, that there is a joy in vocation. All of these things, which were gifts from God to Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, that though the fall is real, and though the curse has been introduced, and though the curse does form and shape and it touches everything, it does not completely take away God's gifts of food and wine 
and marriage and vocation. And so he tells us that when we are experiencing the world as it is, when we are experiencing the curse as it is, to go to the goodness of God, to taste of that afresh. Because it is in the tasting of God's goodness that we are reoriented to the right perspective. And that is, as we have said, you and I are not in the hands of men. We are in God's hands. And his providence and his sovereignty is hidden. It is mysterious. And he doesn't give us all the details up front. And he doesn't give us all the details in the middle. We will find out the details in the end. But what we are called to do as God's people is to trust him in the moment right now amidst the curse. To trust in his providence and his sovereignty. And though life may not work out the way that we hope it will or that we think it will, Reality, eternity, eternity is going to be not only what we hope, but so much more than we can even think or pray for. How do we live then in this cursed world? We have to adjust our expectations and make sure that our expectations are based on what God tells us to expect and not to develop expectations that this world is just going to crush time after time after time. And one of the expectations that he has stated at the beginning of chapter 9 is that the same things happen to you whether you are righteous or whether you are wicked. What he tells us here is that our expectations have to take into account that things don't always work out the way we think that they should because time and chance happen to everyone. Now, how do we, what, what, what do we typically expect? Especially here, um, as those who live in American culture where we have had these amazing privileges and where there has been amazing wealth and freedom not for everyone at the same time and in every way. But nonetheless, there has been some amazing blessings to be experienced. But what does Solomon tell us? The race does not belong to the swift. It's not always the fastest person who wins the race. Well, but hold up. The fact that they're the fastest means that they should win the race, right? They're the fastest. What Solomon tells us is that's not a, a good expectation for this world. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong. Once again, that goes contrary to the way we think of things, doesn't it? If you're the strongest, then you should win but that's not what we find here bread is not to the wise you can be the smartest person in the room and that doesn't mean you're going to have material blessing wisdom intelligence does not equate to material blessing it just doesn't 
those with knowledge do not inherently have favor. You see, that's how we tend to think. That's how this culture tends to function. You want to win? you got to be the strongest. You want to succeed? Well, then you need to study hard so that you can be the smartest. You want to do well? Well, then you've got to work really hard, put in the time, put in the effort, because if you will, then here's what you will get. We live in a society that is built upon the pull yourselves up by the bootstraps mentality. What Solomon says is that is not the right way to think about how the world works. And if that's how you decide to try to process your existence in a cursed world, you are setting yourself up for frustration after frustration after frustration. And you'll find yourselves, when that, when that thing happens one more time, and you're there by yourself alone, and you're being honest with yourself, and you'll hear yourself say, this isn't how it should be. This isn't how it's supposed to work. All of us, I'm telling you, all of us have expectations about the world and how it works and our place within it and what we should get out of this world. Expectations that are not purely and perfectly formed by God's word. And so God in his grace is trying to help us to be real. Don't live in this world thinking that the strong are the ones who win. Don't live in this world thinking that if you're the fastest, that you're guaranteed victory. Don't live in this world in such a way that if you are the smartest, that you should get some kind of accolades and some type of earthly blessing out of it. If those are your expectations, you're setting yourself up for the frustration of the curse rather than the blessing that comes from entrusting yourself to the God who is providential, who is sovereign, and in the mystery of his divine will is working everything out, including in your life, that you need to happen in order to help you turn away from sin and to constantly turn back to him. To turn away from the earthly, the finite, the things that are passing away in order to develop your taste buds for the eternal, for the infinite, for that which will always last. God is telling us that the wisdom that leads to, the, to experience the blessings and the goodness that he has for us, even in a fallen, cursed world, is a wisdom that realizes that might doesn't always make right. Now that can be frustrating. If you are the strongest, it can be frustrating to be the strongest and not win. It can be frustrating to be the smartest and it not get you ahead. It can be frustrating uh, to, to be the one who is, who is learning and who is studying and who is being diligent 
and to not get a payoff. But it's also a blessing. Being used by God is not based on being the smartest or the strongest or the fastest. To be used by God is not dependent on being the big church with the big budget that has all the bells and whistles and can offer anything and everything to satisfy any potential personal taste and preference. The battle is not won by the the strongest or the biggest. And meaningful ministry is not only accomplished by those who are large and influential, who can, who can, use, their, uh, can, can use their weight to, to get things the way that they want them to, to be done within their, within their uh, community. The large don't always win. The small don't always lose. I mean, think about it this way. If the race is not always to the swift, one of the things that that means is that you can be slow and still win. If the battle is not always to the strong, one of the things that means is that you can be weak and you can still win. If the bread is not always to the wise, it means you can just be average and still eat. If it is not the riches that are always going to the intelligent, then you can be like me and still make a little bit of money. You can be like me and have everything that you need plus a lot extra. You don't have to know everything in order to experience favor in this life. You can be someone who is ignorant and still experience the good things that God has for us in this world despite of the curse of sin. Yeah, it can be frustrating to the strongest person in the room that their strength doesn't always get them what they want, but it can be such a blessing to the one who always feels weak, to the person who always feels cut out, to the person who always feels like they they are being pushed to the side, to the church that doesn't have the big budget, that doesn't have all the people, that doesn't have, you know, pull with politics, to the church that is just small and just simply preaches the gospel, that there is a powerful ministry that is still to be had by those who do not have what looks like much according to the according to this world, but who have tapped into the infinite riches that have already been made ours by nature of our union with Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are told by the Apostle Paul that in Christ we have already been blessed with all of the blessings of the heavenly places. In Christ you lack nothing. In Christ you have everything regardless 
of what that looks like in this world, regardless of whether you experience that as someone who is already always blessed with good health or if you're someone who always finds yourself sick, whether you are someone who is able to pay the bills and put money in savings and do extra things or whether you are just getting by. The blessings that God has for his people are not tied to this world. They are tied to something that doesn't make sense to this world. Because the blessings that God has are the blessings of a poor, wise man whose words didn't mean much, whose words were often contradicted, words that were often not valued. A poor, wise man who embodied the very wisdom of God, and yet that wisdom was not embraced because it was contrary to the expectations that they had for God and the expectations they had for this world. The Jews of the first century were expecting a military, powerful leader who would swoop in and conquer the Romans and establish the Israelites as being over, you know, over the whole world. And instead, what they got was someone who came who didn't even have a place to lay his head, who often was sustained by the fellowship and the blessings of what people shared with him as Jesus Christ came, not as a king in the pomp and glory that he was due, but in the humiliation of taking up the role of being a servant, where God took a servant one who was discarded, one whose words were not valued, and yet one who went to the cross and who died and through an instrument of death was able to achieve life. You see, the wisdom that Solomon continues to promote to us that he is just pushing and pushing and pushing because it is so contrary to how we naturally function is that if we are going to follow God in a cursed world, we have to uh, follow him according to his wisdom. And his wisdom is he takes the weak and he uses that to win. He takes the discarded and he uses that to win. He takes death and he uses that to make life. He takes humiliation and he uses that to bring glory. That's God's wisdom. That's the wisdom of the cross. And that's the wisdom that Solomon is giving to us. Yes, ahead of the cross, ahead of time, before the cross is manifest and made real. Solomon even knows now that our expectations have to be built upon what he is seeing God do in this world, even as he knew the history of Israel, where God would take this little people and use them to conquer Egypt, where God would take this little people and use them to, to defeat armies that were so much greater than they. Not because they were great, and not because they were big, and not because they were strong, but because God had promised and they were trusting. What happened, though, when they stopped trusting? What happened when they started thinking like the world and they started trying to create 
partnerships with the big nations around them, thinking that their safety was dependent on being tied to a strong military, that their safety was tied to a nation with lots of money and with lots of power, that their safety was tied to something that was on this earth. What happened? They turned their backs on God. And as a result, they did not experience his blessing. They experienced his curse. And beloved, you and I face this similar challenge and temptation every single day of our lives. When I wake up tomorrow morning, am I going to orient myself according to who I am in Christ as one who has received all the blessings of the spiritual places, who has been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenlies? Is that what's going to determine how I live today? Or am I going to make my determination today on the basis of whether or not I get acknowledged, whether or not I am recognized, whether or not I feel strong, whether or not I feel accepted, whether or not my words mean something? You see, that's the temptation. And that's the choice that we have to make every day to which the one who got on the cross for us and the one who was raised out of the death of the cross for us has told us to follow him. We must take up our cross. Beloved, the ministry of this church is going to be successful not on the basis of numbers and budget. It is going to be successful on the basis of whether or not we will trust God enough to give up finite things and to embrace the infinite things in Christ. Whether or not we will embody the cross, not just talk about the cross. What do you want? Do you want a ministry that talks about the cross and then allows you to live however you want throughout the week, pursuing worldly wisdom, pursuing the things of this life? Or do you want a ministry that tells you to take up the cross and to the embody the cross so that your words about the cross have meaning and are used by God for the accomplishment of his purposes? Our expectations have to be changed. And our expectations have to be built not upon the culture in which we live or the preferences of our own hearts, or the idols that are constantly before us. Our expectations have to be built upon the cross, that God uses death to achieve life, that God uses humiliation to achieve glory, that God loves to take the small and the seemingly weak and insignificant and use that to constrain all of heaven and earth to his eternal purposes in Jesus Christ. Beloved, let's celebrate the 4th of July, and let's celebrate the wonderful privileges that we have experienced, but let us do so as those who will purposefully and conscientiously reject the truths that are offered to us by this culture, even the culture as it existed in 1776, and let our expectations be formed and shaped and based 
upon God's word made real in Jesus Christ so that we might, regardless of our size and our budget, be used for the purposes of God's eternal glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is so easy to trust in the things that look big. It is so easy to trust in the things that look strong. It is so easy to trust in the things that seem to be winning the day. It is so easy to be captivated by the things that look good today but will be gone tomorrow. Lord, you tell us what that is. That is hevel. That is vanity. That is, that is the cotton candy of this life. And so help us, Lord, to instead found ourselves upon the eternal realities that have been revealed in Jesus Christ that you are building into us by faith in Jesus Christ. And give us the courage, Lord, to, to say no to the heaven and to, and to say yes to the eternal substance. Help us as a people, Lord, not to, to function and to live according to the culture of might makes right, but instead to take up our cross and to know that it is foolishness to the Greeks and that it is a stumbling block to the Jews. And yet that is the wisdom by which you are accomplishing your eternal plans and purposes, not only for us as your people, but for this world that you still govern completely and totally according to the purposes of your will. And so, Lord, we need your help. We need your help to celebrate your greatness even when we don't always see it with our eyes. Help us to embrace it with our faith. And use what seems to be silly, like the preaching of the word, and use that to establish your eternal purposes within our lives so that we will trust you, that we will take a chance that we will not live according to the expectations of this culture, but that we'll take a chance and live according to what you have revealed in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be a faithful people who live constantly in the faith and trust of who you are and what you have done for us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.